Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today we are very pleased and extremely honored to have with us Rabbi Dr. Aaron Rakefet. Rabbi Rakefet is Professor of Rabbinic Literature at Yeshiva University's Carolyn and Joseph S. Gruss Institute in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. Rabbi Rakefet is an internationally acclaimed scholar, speaker, and author. He is a pioneer in Jewish education, having taught thousands on thousands of devoted students over his illustrious career. Rabbi Rakefet's works include Bernard Rebel, builder of American Jewish Orthodoxy, the Silver Era, Rabbi Eliezer Silver and his generation, the Rav, the world of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, as well as Washington Avenue to Washington Street. And today we will be talking about a fascinating topic, the relationship between two of the seminal Jewish figures of the 20th century, Rabbi Aaron Cutler and Rabbi Yosef Dov, Bear Soloveitchik, the Rav, Rabbi Rakefet is eminently positioned to present insights into this topic as he studied under both of these Torah giants. Just very briefly, Rabbi Rakefet, again, thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate it very much. Um, America, when Rabbi Cutler arrives, his arrival, and what were his early years like? Um, Rabbi Aaron Cutler, the question is, how did he arrive? The Varhat Sala, which was established in the late 30s by Rabbeisa Silva, uh, tried desperately to bring over Rabbanim. They finally got permission to bring over a few that did not have the necessary qualifications, the non-immigrant visa status, etc. And there was a whole dialogue and debate who to bring over. And they decided, above all, to bring Rabban Kutler. Why did they decide to bring Rabban Kutler? And this is very fascinating. He was not that well known yet. He was Kletzker Rosh Yeshiva. He was uh, essentially, uh, 1892, he was born. We're talking 1940. He uh, was not that old. He wasn't, uh, hadn't published Svarim, etc., but they reached the conclusion that to bring over one of the world-famous Gainim, these people were in their 70s and 80s, and there's a limit to their energy. And Rabarin was a bren. Uh, I said it in Yiddish, I don't know how to translate it. It was a burning fire. And they brought Rabarin to America. Rabarin arrived in 1941. His initial years in America were totally devoted to Hatzalah work. He wanted to save as much as he could, obviously. And he knew the Matzah better than anyone, uh, Rebleza Silva and the others who were so active in Hatzalah, deferred to Rebarin. By 1943, there was no way to save anyone, basically. And uh, at that point, Rebarin came back to his role as a Rosh Yeshiva. Now, the story is fascinating. Uh, there were G'doylem who already who were arriving in America, Reb Mendel Zaks. Reb Mendel Zaks was Ravna Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, Reb Shmuel Belkin, uh, the second president of YU, studied under him in Ravn. He was Reb Shmuel Belkin's Rebbe. And everyone knew about Reb Mendel Zaks, son-in-law of the Chafetz Chaim. And uh, Rabbi Revel, saved Reb Mendel Zaks, among others. He invited him to teach at the yeshiva, and that enabled him to get an unquoted immigrant visa, and he came to the United States. 
Uh, he was not anxious to go into what, to what became why he was not just why he was yeshiva and yeshiva college. And he started a kolel for kudshim, basically, in Mount Vernon. And uh, the idea was that we now had uh, some Americans, mainly uh, from Yeshiva Tchafetz Chaim, perhaps from Teirah and there the refugees who were coming in. So the Kolo began. The Kolo did not take off. And um, Baron took that base and spoke on the east side in the shul. I know people who were there, and it changed their whole lives. American youngsters, and Rebarin wanted to find a place away from the crowd, away from the big city, away from colleges, actually, and he chose Lakewood. There was another reason he chose Lakewood, because Lakewood at that time was what Florida is today. You didn't fly down to Lakewood, you took a bus. At that point, buses were more popular than planes. And it was a good resort town during the winter, and therefore you could, there were a number of kosher hotels, and you had a source of income you could raise money. So Rabban chose Lakewood, and he began with about 13 students. Uh, and and what, what year are we talking about now? This 1943. Is what year? 1943. Okay. And uh, those were the early years. Now, when you talk about Rabban and more than Lakewood, it was very simple. Rabban was, as I said a few moments ago, a Bren, and he wasn't just satisfied with Lakewood. He put Agurit Yisrael on the map in America. Uh, until World War II, uh, every Rav in America was a Mizrahiite, was a Zionist. The only Agudist in America was a Rav out in uh, Nebraska, who was Machshir, the Schlachthaisers, the slaughterhouses there. His name was Rav Grzynski. He was a cousin to Rav Chaim Isa. He, Kaka, was an Agudist. He later retired to Brooklyn, and I met people who told me he knew every Tysus and Shas by heart. It was, it was a year London. He was an Agudist. After World War II, as you know, very few Mizrahiites are left in the United States. Anyone who was a Mizrahiite basically went in Aliyah, the entire, my entire generation which uh, produced Gedole, Gedole, Gedole Israel. Uh, the greatest among them live or died in Eretz Israel. And um, Rebaran is the one. Chinech he became the big uh, patron for Chinech And that was a second part of Rebaran. He was not just Rosh Yeshiva of Lakewood, he was a activist on the rabbinic political scene. He got involved with the Agudas Rabbanim. And ultimately, as you know, the Union of Orthodox Rabbis, uh, by the 1950s, it shifted gears, the mid-50s, instead of practicing rabbis being elected to the presidium, you had Rosh Yeshiva. The only uh, holdovers from the old era were the Blaise Silva, because everyone had tremendous derecherits for him. And he had Ken Kutler in him. He was a tremendous London. And uh, Rabbi Tights of Elizabeth. He was a non-Rosh Yeshiva, 
but he was a man of great ability, great achievements, and knew the American scene backwards and forwards. So uh, they were the two holdovers. But later, you talk about the Presidium, you talk about Cutler's activities, you talk about Rav Meshav Feinstein, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Baruch Hashem Lo Alman Yisrael. Now, uh, Lakewood at that time it was a very unique experience. And here I have to tell you, I have a tremendous advantage over my students. And by the way, this coming Sunday, I start my 63rd year of teaching Torah. But now it's in a way I could never dream. I only cry that the Rav couldn't teach like this because uh, I'll be teaching with three, at least three to four continents listening all over Israel, the United States, um, um, uh, England, and South Africa. And the American continent, this is two years, I plead with them, don't stay up all night. It's 2 a.m. in New York when I'm again, 1 a.m. In, in Chicago. And my Talmudim tell me, uh, you know, more important, the Shmiya is not as important as the Re'iya. And they quote the quote Chazal with the Kriya Jamsov, and I understand them. I can't argue with them. They put them on my face. Mechayel, Mechayel. Amen. 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 Now, with Rebarin, Lakewood at that time, and why you at that time, I'll tell you what my advantage was, which you don't have today. It's very simple. I'd walk into YU. On the street, I spoke English. I'm a third-generation American. My parents were born in Harlem. My grandparents came to America literally at the turn of the century, 1900. Uh, my whole thought process was English. The minute you opened the door to YU or to Lakewood, Alsus given Yiddish. It was in a totally different world. And that was a tremendous advantage because here, a kid like myself could push his way forward and talk to Rabbi Kotler, Klesker, Chabgeret with them in learning. I spoke with them, Hashkafa. There's a chutzpah, the kid. You came into YU, the Rabbeim didn't know anything about baseball. But here you're talking to Mendel Zaks, the Chabot, at that point he had joined the YU faculty. Dr. Belkin saved his Rebbe, I'll put it honestly, and uh, gave him Panasa. And uh, you, you talk to the kind son-in-law. You, I was a little older. I'm sitting right next to the rough. The rough couldn't get in or leave without my standing up. There's that famous picture. You can see where I'm sitting. So it, it was a different experience altogether. Now, Lakewood was even more unique because the heart of the Lakewood crowd, in my time, there are about 100, 110 students at the most. Half of them were survivors, Yudapayasha. And you could see their relationship to Rabarin, and you felt klitz. It, it connected you to the earlier generations. And I have to tell you, it affected a lot of my interest, of course, and my basic, uh, no one gives me credit. I know Shas and Paiskim, et cetera, Shailat and Shuvat. But everyone says the great historian, all right, true. I got, and you mentioned some of my books. I have a fifth volume, Rakafat Aram, that's being prepared now, which has endless material on Torah history. And, and that's because I was exposed. I, I, I was walking in Washington Heights, walking in Lakewood, but I really was in Lithuania, White Russia, Poland, 
And I can tell you even better, and my students will testify, when I get emotional, I break into Yiddish. I, 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 I cry in Yiddish, I laugh in Yiddish. And, uh, you know, that says something. And in Lakewood, there was Freddie Zucker, a kid from Baltimore, and I still remember Freddie convincing me that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke Yiddish with the Rabbeinu. It can't be any different. I'm holding Freddie. Yeah, so I have to tell you, that was a tremendous experience. And the Mashkiach of Lakewood, of Nassim Vachsvogel, who was Mashkiach many, many decades, uh, he used to regale me with stories Again, in the 1920s, there was only one act in town. That was what became YU, which was Yeshiva Sibbetskochan and Yeshiva College. MTA, Yeshiva College, Yeshiva Sibbetskochan. And the Nassim Vachvogel studied there. And he told me when Dr. And Rabbi Belkin, Dr. Belkin came to America, they learned Vachavrita. What was the trade off? Rabbi Shmuel taught him Gemara. You know, he was at Atme, he was way, he was a Nilui. And uh, Reb Nussin taught Reb Shmuel English. He was his first English teacher. So uh, th- this uh, gives you a feel of what right. it was like. Now, let, let's, I, let, let's, let's shift for a second, if we can, um, to the Rav. So, no, no, one second. I'm following oh, okay. you, can, you, you can relax. Uh, okay. If I had my way, I would have remained in life. But I have to be honest. Nafshi, okay. and my parents who were um, letting me do what I want. They were and had really no real understanding or knowledge. They just had tremendous Jewish feeling. So uh, I was my own boss. But my mother, my, you know, my father, those days, women made all the decisions. Uh, a father worked and a mother made the decisions. And she was very upset. I didn't want to go to college. So my mother said, it's a, it's a, a disgrace. She, she went to college till the depression knocked her out. My father went to pharmaceutical school till the depression knocked him out. And you're not going to go to college. So I made a deal with my parents. I would try Yeshiva College for one year. And if I don't like it, they agreed I can go back to Lakewood. So in September 1955, my first class in Yeshiva College, a new professor, it's his very first lecture, a man who went on to influence thousands of lectures that I would later give to Hazeke Torah Hashem Tamima, Professor Louis Feldman. And you have no idea I come into this class, 55, a young kid, 17, wanting to go back to Lakewood. He hands out sheets on the Hammurabi Code, the Hittite Code. And I say, what's going to be here? etc. So, uh, he gives a lecture on the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. That was something out of the world. At that moment, I became a wider person. And he showed that all the ancient codes reflect the Sheva Mitzvah, except they're more lingered than the Sheva Mitzvah, because he ate Salev Adam, Raminu Rav, what we have today, nothing has changed. All right, then I'm very shortly thereafter... 1954, I heard my first shia from the rabbi was the Yorkshire shia, and I understood the halacha perfectly, not the agada. It's interesting. It took a few more years to appreciate the agada, who the rabbi was, when he left Shas and Paiskim in Bris, which, which already by the age of 15, 16, was axiomatic for me. Zil Kribe Rafu. And then I met the rabbi, and uh, 
the Rav, so everyone asks me, what's the difference the Rav around? The truth was, on one level, they were exactly the same. Uh, and I'll prove it to you in, one, in a second. Litvishetayda, Shas, Paiskim, Rambam, Bimendaf, Lerinin, Arrived, Rabbat, as we say in Israel, they were exactly the same. How can I prove it? Very simple. In Lakewood, I became very close to a baron's son of Schneer Kutler. I was a Ben Bayek in his home. And uh, these years, I don't have to give you any other source except these years heard from Schneer. When he came back, he, after World War II, after he got out, he was in Israel. He studied by Rabbi Sazam Melzer, his grandfather, in Eitz Chaim. And then he came back to America to help his father. His father, Mantata Megishik, My father sent me to what you call YU today, and it was YU already, it was after 45, uh, to study with the Rav. And I spoke with Rav Schneer, and what, what, what an impression. And he told me that the Torah was unbelievable. He said the students, sometimes he felt awkward the way they dressed, the way they come to Shia. All right, had he lived in Israel, he would have become a lot more understanding that one doesn't have to wear a uniform. The godlet of the person is not overwhelmed. But that's a different story. That's, I'll talk about that actually on Sunday in my opening Shia when I deal with Rabarin Soloveitchik. But anyway, he, he went to study on that level, on that level, there was no difference. And on that level, they both honored each other. And I'll tell you another story, which you can find on the internet, David Weingarten. Again, these are people I knew quite well, Sharon Tours. David Weingarten, who ran a, 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 a tour, a, a, what do you call it? The tours arranged travel. Um, that was his business. Uh, he gets a call, and he was very big in Mizrahi, and he had big yichis. His wife was uh, the granddaughter of Rav Ziel, uh, the chief rabbi, Slavic chief rabbi. And he gets a call that Castro is willing to allow Jews out, the communist revolution in Cuba, but the day he's letting them fly out is Yom Kippur. And uh, he and and evidently, Weingarten was involved in making the arrangements. As we said, he was a travel agent, mm-hmm. ran a travel agency. That's the word I was looking for. And uh, you live in Israel as long as I do. You think in Hebrew, not in English. But uh, and uh, he called the Rav. And the Rav says to David, I'll call you, call me back in two hours. And David calls him back in two hours, and the Rav tells him, do everything possible, get them out even on your kippah. It turns out that Castro had no evil intention. He didn't realize it was Yom Kippur. When they explained to Castro that it was Yom Kippur, he said, so go a few days later, and there was never a problem. Years later, David Weingarten meets the Rav at a wedding. And he says, Rebbe, why did you tell me to call you back, I should call you back in two hours. And the Rav looks at him and says, David, a shiloh like that, do you think I can pass in myself? I had to reach Rabarin Kutla. After I spoke with Rabarin, then I had my answer ready for you. 
So that story tells you something. All right. On that level, they were both in a very similar world. But there was, of course, a tremendous difference beyond that. Rebarin attempted to recreate in America exactly what he had in Kletsk. That was his dream. America is not different. It's nicht anders. It's like the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, if you know the famous story when he arrived in America and he wakes up the next morning and he tells his Kich Sidim, I'm going to show you America is not different. Rebbe had the same feeling. The Rav, on the other hand, had a vastly different background. He was raised by a mother, Rebbe Tzimpesha, Feinstein, Salavechik, Zichonet Zadetik, who I also knew. He was raised by a mother who was a tzadikit, but very broad, and had appreciation for the 20th century, the new world, Western civilization, literature, all that went with it. Part of this she gave to her children. And the Rav, as you know, left Poland, left Warsaw, went to Berlin, and when he arrives in America, he has a PhD from the University of Berlin in philosophy. He had studied mathematics, philosophy. He was very much at home in the Western world. If you knew the Rav intimately, and I'm not the only one to make this point. You read the Rabbi Yitzchak Tversky's has paid him for the Rav, Rabbi Lichtenstein's descriptions of his father-in-law. Totally at home. Uh, there was no breach between, no chasm between Brisk and the Western world. And I once described the Rav, I was being interviewed by a very right-wing publication by its editor, a real briska. And I said, you want to describe the Rav? A briska at ease in the Western world. He started dancing with joy. He said, oh, he said that's perfect. He understood what I was saying. You see, and, and you, you can compare him to other gedolim. For instance, you take uh, the Sri Deyesh. This, if you know the Sri Deyesh well, and I'm the one, his famous Talmud, the Talmud who did the PhD in the Sri Deyesh, is my Talmud, Mark Shuk, Rabbi, Dr. Professor Mark Shapiro. Where did he first hear about the Sri Deyesh in my class in BMT? We, we interviewed Rav uh, Shalom Karmi on the Sri Deyesh a couple of months ago. Uh, uh, that's my neighbor. Well, you're, you're close to home. Uh, uh, so, you, uh, Kami Horowitz, you talk. Oh, oh, Shalom Kami, not Kami Horowitz. Uh, Kami Horowitz, and Professor Horowitz is my neighbor. And, and Shalom Kami, I know too. And, and the Sri Deyesh, who is not totally at ease. He, he had moments where he veered back to Mir, back to Poland, back to Slobodka, and he had moments where he was way beyond the Western world. He wrote things where you could see this man totally at ease, plus in the Western world. The Rav was a briska in the Western world. And of course, there, there was a chasm between himself and Rebarin. And I mean, I know, I know a story, uh, I don't want to mention the name, but it was someone I knew very well. It turns out that his cousin was one of my best friends and my, it's not only my, one of my best friends until today. 
He's also my Talmud because I don't repeat all my Shema ongoing. So this individual retired in Israel at the age of 65, and he's my age today, do the Hezbon, and he hasn't missed a Shia in the last 20 years. And this was his cousin. His cousin, the Rebbe, was very close to the family, and the cousins accepted to Harvard. And the Rav or Harvard, this to the Rav, this was important. And instead, he goes to Lakewood. He's no longer alive, but he went on to learn in Lakewood many years. Once of and the Rav was upset. How will he make a living? You know, the Western world. It turned out he did okay, but the Rav totally at ease. And that's the Rav. And that's that's his message until today. Uh, as you know, in his own family, the Rav has many descendants who are all in Habatzat HaTorah. And you find among them many differences in Hashkafa. But that's the way I understand the Rav. That you have a right to go in your own derech. This is the beauty of being a Torah Jew. You open up a Gemara, the first thing you see in the first Mishnah. When can you say Kriyat Shema at night? Until what time? Three different viewpoints. Baruch Hashem. We have many different viewpoints. And But that, to me, is how I understood the Rav. And I'll tell you a fallout on what I just said. Um, it, it, was the Rav like Rav Shumsha Foil Hirsch? It's a very interesting question. You know, in my second volume, my two volumes on the Rav, so my second volume, I have... Two talks where the Rav discusses himself from Absolutionist. I consider though I translated from Yiddish into English. I consider that my greatest contribution to scholarship. Uh, again, if you appreciate who Rav Hirsch was, the Rav, and there's no question in those talks, the Rav is not a Hirschian. You can say to the Rav Rebbe, and if we didn't have to go to college, didn't have to live in the Western world, what would you say, Rebbe? We just sit and learn. The Rav would have said, absolutely, just sit and learn. Study the Rav's magnum opus, Ish Halacha. He sounds like Rav Hirsch. To go out, to conquer, to do, to learn. Nothing to do with reality of the civilization in which you're in. This is the divine command. It's very fascinating. I once spoke about that to a, an audience and was a popular crowd, you know, not and the rabbi got so upset, I implied the love may be against college. The next week he gave a whole talk, you know, deflating my point of view. But uh, I stick to what I said. It's a contradiction. But that was the Rav, totally at ease in the Western world. Whether open to interpretation, in my humble opinion. Would you say that um, the Rav and Rav Cutler had a personal relationship? No, was, there's, no there's no question. Was it beyond com- communal issues? Was it, was uh, no, there's no question there was a personal relationship. Uh, they, there was covered Haddadi, and uh, the Rav knew who Rabarin was, but the Rabarin knew who the Rav was. Uh, that Rabarin didn't totally agree with the Rav, and the Rav didn't totally agree with Rabarin, goes without saying. That goes without saying. But there absolutely was a personal relationship there. 
And the Rav, you know, Rav was a shame dover, the Kletzkara Shishiva. And I can tell you, people in the Rav's family, I don't want to mention names, all this was told to me privately, but people who knew the Rav better than anyone, because they lived with him 24-7, they said that one of the real people that the Rav had Derech Eretz for, and, you know, with tremendous consideration, was Rav Baran Katla. Doesn't mean they agreed. Now, you have here a question about the drafting of women. So, uh, you know, uh, 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 the RJJ president, uh, Mr. Schick, who was a lawyer, left uh, quite a bit of memoir. Some of it is on the Internet. And uh, he tells a story that uh, he claims the person who drove one of the participants discussing what they're going to do about the drafting of women. And he sat in on the meeting where Baron Cutler was there and uh, Ralph Sachs, Rev Mendel Sachs was there, could be another Gadol or so, and the Rav was there. And they wanted the Rav to come out against drafting of women and issue a statement, and the Rav refused. And when you open up the one of the volumes published by the Torah Torah Foundation, edited by uh, Rabbi Nat- Natty Helfgott, my student, uh, um, on 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 this very issue, there's a whole article, a letter from the Rub, and it's very simple. The Rub agreed with them. The Rub wasn't in favor of drafting women, but what the Rub disagreed was not to go public against Israel outside the state of Israel. And there, too, you see right away the difference in outlook, the difference in the nuances of their hashkafa. Now, as far as Agurit Yisrael goes, I think you're aware that I recorded nine hours in the Kolel. It came out in six tapes. Tapes, uh, no one knows what tapes are today, but I still remember reels, and I actually saw, like, uh, little metal uh, pieces of metal going up into the air that they recorded on in the 1930s. And um, the Rav began as on a good disc. There's no two ways about it. He was very impressed with the Aguda movement. First of all, with Flanier, Abhaim Meisig Rizhensky, very impressed with Warsaw. Uh, the Gere Rebbe, much it's, it's all Aguda. Then he came to Berlin and he saw Aguda already on a much higher, uh, classy uh, social level. Uh, Rav Hildesheimer, others, well, Agudistim. And then he came to the United States. And uh, without going into great detail, but I can tell you I'm, I'm you know, when you come up with theories, I would say I'm 100% sure I'm correct. That's actually, I heard Rabban's Lichtenstein, Zechatzadik Levracha, said something similar. What happened in America, what happened with Hitler, caused the Rav to shift gears. Because when you go back to the late 30s, there were big demonstrations against Hitler. Actually, my parents participated, Madison Square Garden, etc., and uh, Aguda did not. I'm actually publishing a major work about this. It's already finished. This part is finished. It'll be in Rakafarar and Chelek. I consider it the most important work I will have ever published because it's Hashkafa, Halacha, 
uh, history, and it's a result of a lifetime of learning, scholarship, living, seeing, doing. And Stadlanut, uh, well, we know where the Stadlanut got us. Go a step further, and this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Read the Rav, read the Boston Reverie's memoir. Uh, 1943, millions of Jews are being killed. Everyone knows about it. The leaders of American Jewry, the Reform rabbis, did not do a thing. They held, withheld the information at Roosevelt's request. Finally, the rabbis, the Orthodox rabbis, the Agudas Harabonim, which was the power then, uh, the Bergson group, Cook, what that man has, Ben Hecht, I can go right up and down the line. They organized the march on the white, on the Capitol in Washington two days before Yom Kippur in 1943. The Rav participated in the back rows. He was not yet famous. Up front was Rev. Lisa Silver, Rev. Rosenberg, Rev. Mayor Berlin, etc. And Roosevelt spat in their face. He didn't even come down to see them. He sent Henry Wallace, and to quote the Rav Maria Rebbe, quote, you all know how much influence a vice president has in the United States. Interestingly, Rebaran Cutler did not participate in the march because he felt that Stadlanut is what counts, not public demonstrations. You can read about this in the volume that came out on Rebaran not Nathan, the Torah with us graduate who was very involved in Hatzalah work after World War II, you can read about Rabarin's not participating. Now, that pushed the rub over the cliff. And from 46 on, he publicly identified with the Mizrahi movement, honorary president, etc. His talks at the Mizrahi conventions will live on as long as Jews walk the face of the earth. Koldo Dido Fake, Hamesh Drasha, Joseph Yechov. I have a major piece coming out shortly. Joseph and his brothers in relation to Theodor Herzl and Zionism. It's dedicated to the memory of my Rebbe. Uh, he became a Mizrahiite, an activist. And when you look at Mizrahi in Israel today in the year 2022, we have a lot to be proud of. We've came broken in spirit, no background, not knowing the way of the land. Remember, it took 200 years to develop a Yiddishkeit in America that could thrive and survive. And look what we have today. Yeshiva, Yeshiva Gedola, Yeshiva Chesda, Upanat, Michlalot, a whole world of religious Zionism. And not only that, if you saw the latest Mizrahi magazine, it's a whole issue devoted to Datiyim and Haredim. And a guy named Rakefet has interviewed how is should be our relationship with the Haredim. And I invite you to see what I wrote, what I said. And this goes back to the Rav, activism. And if you ask me what was the Makabapatish, the straw that broke the camel's back, how Roosevelt spat in their face in 1943. Hashem Yirachem. Today, Gorbachev died. That's the big news at this moment in time. 
And the man has a lot of suyot. There are at least two million Jews in the world today who know they're Jewish and act Jewish and live Jewish. Many of them, Shema Torah Mitzvah, it's because of Gorbachev. But give the credit to Ronald Reagan. You follow me? The Jews demonstrated, yelled, shouted, Regan, the evil empire, a quarter of a million Jews outside yelling and shouting right before Gorbachev comes to Washington. And Regan says, I can't do anything for you till I satisfy those millions of people who are yelling and shouting outside. That's the ultimate win of activism. So that's the rub as I understand them. Unfortunately, our, our time is, is now up. And again, this is just a, a little bit of a text from Rabbi Rakefet. Rabbi Rakefet, thank you so much for your time this morning. I know it's very valuable and appreciate it very much. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.